Welcome to episode number 304 of Destination Linux. Destination Linux is a video podcast from the Tux Digital Network. If you're new to the show, Destination Linux is a podcast perfect for all experience levels. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the show for you. My name is Ryan. I'm Michael. And I'm Jill. On this week's exciting episode of Destination Linux, we're going to talk about using a VM or WSL. There's things out there in the community where people saying, do not use Linux in a VM, do not use Linux in WSL version of Linux. It's not real Linux. We're going to talk about that in the show today. Then we're going to discuss difficulty tiers of distros, really interesting article out there. We're going to see if we agree with the tiers that they created. Plus, we have our tips, tricks, and software picks, and a special hardware review from Jill. All of this and so much more coming up right now on Destination Linux. So in place of the community feedback this week, we've got a community review, community feedback, community review. We're switching it up this week. Jill, you got a new piece of tech, or as Zeb used to say, a new piece of kit that you've been spending yeah. some time with. Tell us what you got and what your impressions are, though. I feel like your shirt is kind of a hint into <laughs> sure what is. you have. Yeah. yeah, a little bit of an introduction. I actually have several hundred keyboards in my vintage computer collection and hardware museum. <laughs> now, normally this is where I gasp and go, oh, my gosh, but it's Jill. Yeah. So of course you do. Yeah. yeah, of course. And I, <laughs> I have shown off, uh, you know, one of my favorite ones on Jill's Treasure Hunt, including my Intergraph keyboard with speakers on Destination Linux yes. number 233. So, and I also am a bit of a keyboard snob. Yes, <laughs> I am for newer keyboards and have several hundred actually in my collection. And that's of course true you do. also. <laughs> of course you do, Jill. <laughs> and including lots of very unique pink and very colorful gaming keyboards of all shapes and sizes, some of which are on display right behind me. You know, often change out my keyboards, honestly, on a monthly basis and love a variety of keyboard layouts, including mechanical and membrane, 60%, 65%, 70%, and full-size keyboards. But what was awesome is our friends over at System76 sent me this unique full-size keyboard to review called the Launch Heavy. So Jill, this is a slightly different keyboard than the Launch Keyboard because we have a lot of people, most of our audience listens to the podcast version. So if you go and you look at System76's Launch Keyboard, that's the one me and Michael tried. They also have a mini and now this Heavy, which yeah. has all of the numpad on the side and all of those type of things. So think of the Launch, but with the numpad attached to the side of it and yeah. that gives you kind of the heavy yes and it is heavy <laughs> and very durable yeah so yeah um i actually had tested the launch light keyboard the small one with the uh, pink switches at the southern california linux expo and i really loved it and i've been wanting to buy the launch light with pink switches ever since i tested it at scale so system 76 made me the launch heavy keyboard with the pink switches to, nice. to test out and review. Now, Jill, I have to ask you something. Do you actually <laughs> prefer pink switches or do you just like them because they're pink and you don't <laughs> care what they sound like because they're pink? Oh, well, kind of both. Well, I, okay, I prefer right, that's fair. switches that are pink. And actually, most of my keyboards, as you can see in the, in the background and, and uh, 
the ones I mostly use have pink keycaps as well. <laughs> nice. But the pink key switches are nice because they are quiet and I can use the keyboard when we are recording our video podcasts. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm using it right now. So I just showed you my uh, one I was currently using on uh, my broadcasting rig. Right. And the keyboard switches I usually buy are browns and reds because I need quieter keys, you know, for mm -hmm. podcasting. But the pink keys, you know, they live in that sweet spot somewhere between the reds and the browns and are quiet yet tactile. And I actually love blue or cherry switches as, as well, but I use those on my gaming rigs because they are just too loud to use on my podcasting, right. game streaming, and right. con for content creation. <laughs> and these are these pink switches or calyx switches or something like that. Yeah, how you Ill. say that? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. They're in. They're I, awesome. I've tested those as well, and they are much uh, much more silent, and that's what I would prefer that as well for doing you know the show and that and creating content. But we had, uh, when we bought our launch, there was only two options. It was the Jade and the Royals. And the Royals were the the, the silent option, and they were not mm -hmm. at all silent. So mm. uh, the pink ones are definitely a better choice for those who want a more quiet experience, especially if you need to do recording. So Yeah. Yeah, the pink are, are really, they're, they're the quietest that I've, I've uh, played with. Yes, yeah, on the mechanical nice. side. And uh, I just... I really enjoyed using this keyboard. It makes typing easy for me. And that is honestly saying something because lots of keyboards are made for people with average to large hands. And I have small ones. So it, it fit the, the travel distance with my fingers and the keys. It just fit my hands really nicely. Even on the heavy, you feel that way that it fits your hands really well. And you said you have smaller mm -hmm. hands. Now, the problem me and Michael had is, well, I... I don't know about you, Michael. You had other issues maybe with the keyboard, but the launch, I could not get my hands in a position to type on it. Like I you, get used to it. Yeah, I've been playing with hundreds mm -hmm. of keyboards over the years of laptops and and other things. I can even use an Asus keyboard, and Asus always does some stupid, funky thing with their laptop keyboards, in my opinion. Um, so I feel like I can get used to a keyboard really well, but. The yeah. launch, like I was constantly hitting the wrong keys, and I feel like it's because it has that indentation. That was just my suspicion. Mm. I don't know if that's the case. If you look on the left side of the keyboard, there's those keys are slightly indented inwards. And because of that, it always that was my suspicion of why I could not get my hands positioned correctly on that keyboard to type on it. But maybe it's just the hands are too big. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's, it's a combination. Made for people with smaller hands. I think it's a yeah. combination as well because the the indention on the left it does bother me, but also on the right side, the where the arrow keys are next to the shift, the shift is I'm expecting the shift to be a much bigger key, and because it is such a small key, like being mm -hmm. slammed next to the arrow keys, it yeah. I would hit the up key so many times, like I would hit that more than I would the shift key just because yeah. of how, what I'm, of my expectation of typing. And I used it for a little while and trying to get used to it, but I just really couldn't ever get used to it because the the inner key and the shift key are both much smaller than I'm used to. So this is the ducky that I'm holding up now, and this is what I utilize. Uh, I got 
couldn't take the launch, so I got something different. And the ducky, you can see there is no indentation. And look at the shift key, Michael. It's yeah. a regular size there yeah. as well. And I really love this keyboard a lot. This has been a really nice keyboard. Yeah, I also like yeah. the fact that that's a style that doesn't have a, num a, a numpad, but it does, like it has everything and else. yeah. Yeah, it has everything else in the size that you're expecting, in the locations you're expecting. That's really the key here is that I, I'm not an anti this style. It's just depending on the user, I think that there is a potential where if they are expecting uh, standard size keys, this might throw them off a bit. You know, it is possible for some people to get used to it, I assume. But I, I, in my case, I wasn't able to get used to it. Uh, yeah. But I do like the, the double space bar thing because mm -hmm. it, it made me realize that I basically only hit one side of the space bar pretty much yeah, always. Yeah, that was interesting. I like yeah. they split the space bar. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that, that was uh, actually... Michael, to your point, and Ryan, um, some of my suggestions to make this keyboard even better is I also do think that the enter key is on the smallest side, but mm -hmm. I actually got used to it really quickly. And the size for me, the size of the delete key being the same size of the backspace key and just above it, I found I found myself accidentally clicking the delete key instead of backspace. Yes, I agree. And also it's it's because those are typically not really next to each other. They're, they're close, but they're not like back to back. And that that would kind of throw me off as well. But yeah. the the thing that kind of r really threw me off in terms of like the first out of the box experience is the very bottom row of keys are all in the wrong place. So you have to go manually move everything and then go in the configurator to, to fix them. And so that's so like the super keys in the right spot and the alt keys in the right spot. I don't get why they're all changed. Like I think the only one that was correct was the control on the left. And uh, that was just a weird experience of like forcing the user to go in and fix the configuration of the keys right when you pull it out of the box. Just something more standard, you mean? Oh yeah, just yeah. because it's the, the it's every video I've seen the people were talking about how they could modify the, you know, you can modify the keys and stuff like that. And most of the time, what they're doing in the video is putting it back to where the keys are supposed to be. And that's the only configuration they're changing. And yeah. at, at that point, it kind of makes me think like, why is this changed? I, I don't understand why they chose to put it in the order that they did. At least you can't change it. Yeah, yeah it is easy to change. Yeah. You just you just move the keycaps and then you go into the configurator and just click a button and push the one you want. So it's not really a, a big deal in terms of the difficulty. It was just kind of odd for me to have to do that. And uh, one of the things I do love about this keyboard is the texture of the keys. They're very yeah. smooth, but with a slight grain that gives them a very tactile feel and That's keeps nice. your, your fingers on them. Yep. And I've actually used the launch heavy keyboard now to do several weeks of my show notes for Destination Linux. Nice. So that's, that's been really fun. And, um, you know, doing my video podcasts for playing games with to review for the show and while game streaming. And, of course, for playing my favorite first person puzzle games like Portal and the Talos Principle. <laughs> I've been replaying What did you those. think about it as a gaming keyboard? It's not really its intent per se, yeah. but how did it work as a gaming keyboard in your opinion? Um, I I really like it. I love the feel of the keys. Again, the pink switches are really nice. So yeah. it was good for uh, with Wazda. But I found um, uh, I usually like the 60% and 70% keyboards because it, it fits my shoulder width. 
because uh, yeah, I've got a, sh a shorter shoulder width and it's more ergonomic with uh, using the mouse while you're using a WASDA. <laughs> so I found myself, I was telling Ryan uh, before the show, I found myself accidentally hitting the numpad a lot because oh, I don't usually, yeah, I don't usually use full size keyboards. <laughs> so that is interesting. So I'm just, you just made me, and I wonder how many people who are listening or watching the episode. Uh, also just compared their shoulder width to their keyboard because I just yeah. did that right right when you said it. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm in big trouble find a keyboard that matches my I don't, shoulder. I don't, think, I don't think there's such yeah. a thing. You're going to get like a yeah. jumbo keyboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the, and, and to that point is actually one of my favorite features of the keyboard that it is a larger keyboard with a number pad, but it's still actually very compact at the same time and has very little, you know, unused space between the main part of the keyboard and the, and the numpad. And I really appreciated that. So Jill, to kind of um, wrap up your impressions of this, you, you've had this for weeks. You've spent a good amount of time with it. It's a $300 keyboard. So it's very, very pricey, but it's important to note that it's manufactured in Denver, Colorado. So yeah. it's milled right there, which makes a big difference. It's beautiful mm -hmm. metal. Beautiful. Even the launch I thought was just top notch to hold it. It's got the USB hub, all of those cool things, as well as the launch. But $300, there's a lot of great keyboards you can get for a lot less money than that. Like the Ducky here, I think I have is like a $140 keyboard and it's yeah. a fantastic keyboard. So is it worth $300? I think so. Because again, it's made in the United States. It's handcrafted here. And I have actually spent three hundred to four hundred dollars on keyboards before. <laughs> so Yeah, but I, I, I think what he's asking is about like if you compare this keyboard to, for example, DOS keyboard stuff, like they have oh, okay. like everything yeah. in the DOS keyboard line is Ducky. less than this. Mm -hmm. There are some benefits to the System 76, and there's a ton of potential for this launch keyboard. And yeah. I think that they, if when they have more uh, effort into their software, I think their software is really where it kind of lacks. Like the hardware has some issues, but you can kind of. It kinda looks like they might have fixed it. that problem though, Michael, because I saw a reviewer on YouTube that was now able to, in the macro assigner, assign multiple keys to one key. So they may be getting closer to the macro stuff we wanted in the first one. Okay. Which is yeah. good. So that is there good. may be some improvements there. And the RGB control is actually wonderful on the app. Yeah. Uh, because I've seen a lot of bad badly implemented one on ones on Windows. <laughs> so that's true. So, that's true. Yeah. What I was looking for when when they mentioned it was using QMK to do all the configurations, I was wanting to use quantum keys. And for those who don't know what quantum keys is, this is where you can effectively change one key to do a combination of multiple keys all at the same time and have essentially macros built into these single key. Uh, and uh, last time I checked, the quantum keys are not possible. However, it is based on QMK, so it is eventually it could be possible that they could add the ability to do it. But at the moment, I think the price is kind of high compared to the more mainstay type of options. Yeah, maybe maybe what are you thinking? Maybe around two hundred. I, I think that if it was about yeah. if it was two, it was one hundred and fifty to two hundred. I think it'd be a lot more easy to you know recommend. But because it's a little bit more, and also the the styling of the keys might might throw off some people. Then there's they have to consider that. I, I think that's an interesting point, Michael. Because like three hundred dollars for a keyboard is a lot to ask. It's a lot 
to ask people for. But if the keyboard is a keyboard that stands out from every other keyboard, meaning I'm getting a lot in return Mm -hmm. and I'm a developer, this is my tool and I use this all day long, I could easily justify saying, hey, $300 for the perfect tool to do my job. Sure. I mean, on a job site, when I go get a skill saw, I'm like, what's the $80 Mm -hmm. one that will last me one job? But if I'm a construction worker, I'm going to go buy that $400 Milwaukee skill saw so that it actually lasts or whatever a good skill saw is. I hope I sounded intelligent there. Um, But in any case, the point is... Never even heard of that. Getting (laughs) a good tool makes sense. But I didn't have that experience with the launch. It was a good keyboard. In fact, I would say it was better than a good keyboard, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't a $300 experience. It didn't blow me away. And with that price, I'm expecting that to do what that to happen. Right. So Jill, do you though, would you take $300 of your hard-earned money for this keyboard? Or do you think what we're saying is accurate? Because you've actually held this particular one. Yeah, I, I, I think you're, you're, pretty accurate on that one. I would actually, personally, I want the launch light because yeah. it's, you know, it, I, I like the 60% keyboards, um, but that's just, per- that's, that's preference. It's funny <laughs> you say that mm-hmm. though, because I yeah. actually really enjoyed holding the launch light myself at scale. Like, Yay. and I, I thought it was a really, it was better than my experience with the launch. Like I just liked the compactness of it for that particular purpose. Because a lot of times I'll take my keyboards and I kind of turn them to the side because mm-hmm. I'm left-handed. And so I'm using oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah, WASD yeah. on an unnatural. So having a really small compact keyboard, I could see being more useful. But Jill, this is awesome. Yeah. Um, it's awesome. System76 is making open source hardware because all the hardware and everything's open Absolutely. source. You can technically yeah. go make this keyboard yourself. They're using open source software. It's made right here in the US, which is pretty awesome in itself. And they sent you a review unit, which is yeah. cool. So. And they sent, you know, they sent us review units so that they can hear feedback to improve the keyboards and make them ba- that much better. Right. Which is great. This one, it's just lovingly handcrafted. It's a beautiful full-size custom keyboard for Linux. And it's the only one. It's the only, you know, configurable uh, keyboard for Linux. <laughs> The only configurable keyboard for Linux. What do you mean by that? As far as like natively configurable yeah, in Linux? Nati- okay. Maybe natively. Meant, okay. meant for Linux, maybe. Yeah, meant for Linux. Uh, it has yeah. the software configurator for Linux. You know, from built from the ground up for Linux. There you go. Yeah, I like that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, if you're interested in checking it out, head to system76.com. Check out the three options that they have. The launch, the launch light, and the launch heavy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Reminds me of Mech Warrior a little bit. A little and it is heavy. <laughs> in there. It is heavy. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the original launch was heavy, so I can't imagine. Yeah, yeah it's even bigger. Yeah. yeah. You know what's not heavy? What's the that? cloud, Ryan. The <laughs> cloud is not heavy. <laughs> this episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Get started right now by going to do.co slash tux2022. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. And thanks to DigitalOcean, you can get set up and running on their awesome cloud platform quickly and easily. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. 
DigitalOcean also offers predictable pricing, robust product documentation, and services that developers love. For example, I love the DigitalOcean Marketplace because you can find all sorts of software that you can easily set up as droplets with just a few clicks. It is awesome. Plus, at DigitalOcean, you can get support at every stage of growth, whether you're a team of just yourself or a team of a thousand people. With DigitalOcean, you can get growing with their simple, powerful cloud computing. And as a listener of the Destination Linux podcast and a member of the Tux Digital community, you can get started for free. In fact, it's better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 60-day free credit when you go to do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022 to get started with that $100 free 60-day credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform. So again, go to do.co slash tux2022. I remember starting out my YouTube channel for the first time and putting videos out there and celebrating like I got my first subscriber, got my first five subscribers, mm -hmm. all these things. And I was expanding from my 30 days of Linux series where my channel kind of took off. And I started noticing there were some comments kind of flowing in as I was doing research on other channels because I was like, okay, I got this momentum now. People are starting to watch my channel. Let me look at other Linux content out there and see what they're doing and see if I can incorporate, you know, steal like an artist, which is a fantastic book, by the way, uh, that mm -hmm. everyone should check out. So I'm stealing like an artist, trying <laughs> to find some good content ideas. And I noticed that people were doing distro reviews in a VM and the comment section wasn't having nothing about it. They were like, always like, yeah, great. You'd used a VM. It's not the same. Stop using a VM. Do it on bare metal. It's got to be on bare metal. And it was something that stuck with me because ever since then, I was afraid of the Linux community to ever do a distro review in a virtual machine because people I recognized didn't like it, right? It wasn't the same experience. Mm -hmm. And there's some truth to it. Because over yeah. the years, obviously, I use VMs all the time, constantly trying different VMs and things of stuff out. And there are situations where you run across problems in a VM that are not the same when you install it on bare metal. For instance, the snap issue. You remember me talking about Ubuntu having an issue where the Firefox snap was just sitting there rolling, 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 rolling. Well, that was in a VM scenario, but when I installed Ubuntu on my bare metal, what it was a week later when the new Ubuntu came out and we did the review of it, the Firefox snap opened near immediately. There was no issue at all. Now, it could have been a software update, it could have been something else, but I feel like I've come across enough experiences yeah. to say weird things happen in VMs that don't happen everywhere else. That's very true. And I think mm -hmm. that the, in that case, the VM is, is you're kind of with a snap, you're kind of having like a containerized thing inside of another containerized thing. And it makes sense that that yeah. would have to create delays. Um, I do think that, that the comment about virtual machines not being a real review is still valid because there are sometimes I would see people who would do a review, a quote unquote review and have only been using it in a VM for maybe a day. And mm -hmm. that, in my opinion, is not enough time to really assess something to a, a, a extensive right. degree. So I used to like see all these different reviews and it has changed quite a bit on YouTube now. That used to be when I would see a review for any particular distro, it would happen to be a like no in no way a review it's someone just kind of walking through the desktop and like pointing out things so i would consider those like overviews rather than reviews if someone is going to do a legit review and wants to include how it works in a virtual machine then 
I think that's totally fine and it's valuable because some people do need to use them in virtual machines. I just don't mm-hmm. think that a review should exclusively be done through a, a virtual machine. So that's on the review side, content creation. But right. really, when I was thinking about this issue, I was thinking about it more from a user perspective. Okay. Should we be encouraging people to utilize Linux in a VM when they're new users mm. and they've not utilized Linux before or something like WSL? Is it okay to recommend that? And the reason why I ask is I've had some interesting experiences recently you remember when we went to scale and I told the whole story about how I went through five laptop returns at Best Buy because mm-hmm. I could not get Linux to work on any of them? Right. Well, one of them, I just needed a laptop at that time. I was out of time. I figured Best Buy was going to turn off my return allowance at any point. And the last one that I picked up was the Lenovo IdeaPad Pro 5 with mm-hmm. an AMD Ryzen in it. What a beautiful piece of nice hardware machine. here. The screen is absolutely gorgeous, 2K screen. It has a GeForce 3050 in it. It's got the nice aluminum frame, top and bottom panels. I'm going to be doing a review on this uh, particular laptop. Just everything you could really want from a really solid laptop at an amazingly low price for it as well. But the keyboard will not work in Linux Mm. at all. So you can boot from the kernel uh, and boot from a USB drive into any Linux distro, whether that's Arch, Ubuntu, I've tried them all, and the keyboard will not initialize. It's not a situation where it initializes after 10 seconds or 15 seconds. It doesn't initialize, period. Right. And there were tons of other issues I ran into with other laptops, mm-hmm. but I basically had to keep a laptop on the trip to have something to write on. And so I kept this and I put Linux in a VM in Windows 11, it felt a little dirty, Michael. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it's, I, I can yeah. see that. It felt a little bit dirty. Like, <laughs> and, and I keep thinking the new versions of Ubuntu came out and things. I'm like, ah, I bet they fixed it now. I'll get that Windows off this machine. And then I would try it and it still won't initialize the keyboard and things in Linux. So am I dirty? Do, do I need okay. to repent for my so, sins, Michael? So, what, so for those who are, who are longtime listeners... Um, you, you'll understand this reference. And for those who are not, I just want to make clear, this is, this is a joke and not my actual opinion, but it's fantastic to finally throw it back in Ryan's face of being a filthy dual booter. (laughs) Yes, true, Michael. And now that that has been done. dare you. (laughs) So for those who actually dual boot, this is not a serious thing, but the, the thing about the virtual machine, if you need to do it because there's some kind of hardware configuration thing, I would I totally understand that. And I also think that it's probably a better thing to do than to just use Windows in it because if you're using a virtual machine, you get the benefits of that virtual machine kind of protecting you in some ways through the Linux system rather than the Windows uh, host itself. Now, mm-hmm. of course, the preference for me would be the reverse where Linux is the host and Windows is the VM. But at the same time, this is sometimes, in your case, not even really possible. So I don't really have a problem with people using in that configuration in general or whether or not, like, what you're talking about is when people say you're not a real Linux user or something like that when they have that configuration. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. So I completely disagree with that. If you're using Linux in any way, I'm, I'm okay with you calling yourself a Linux user because you are using Linux. And... If, if it's a hardware situation, then it's a much more difficult thing. Even if you want to not use Windows, in those cases, you have to. And it's not; it's just an unfortunate 
situation that hardware manufacturers are kind of putting on people these this these days. But and when yeah. it comes to WSL, I hate WSL like oh. in every way. And a lot of people look at me as being like, oh, you're just being judgmental. And it's like, no, for me, WSL is a way for Microsoft to use Linux to keep people on Windows. Like that's its entire purpose and it has nothing to do with benefiting Linux. It's to benefit Microsoft and Windows. And that's why I can't stand it. And I especially don't like it when I see companies and projects in the Linux world helping WSL become better. Because originally people were like, well, WSL is not really gonna be made for regular apps or whatever. It's just gonna be for server implementation and sysadmins and all that. Well, guess what now happens? You can run apps in WSL. So I guess who was who was GUI old, apps, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and you, know? you, you kind of called that from the beginning. I remember us talking about this and people telling us we were wrong that they weren't. But I, I do feel like in a way it's Windows kind of hiding the fact that you're using Linux. Mm -hmm. yeah. And well, it's in the not end, really advertising make, it. Yeah. yeah, in the end, they want to make money. And so that's how they're leveraging Linux. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is, is which it, is, is fine. You can make it's, money it's okay. using Linux, but I, I feel yeah. like sure. WSL hides the Linux yeah. part as much as possible. I also, my issue with WSL is not because they made it. I under, I think Microsoft made a fantastic business decision to create WSL. It's beneficial to them. It makes sense. Yeah. My issue is people who are promoting WSL as if it is good for Linux. It is not a good thing for Linux, in my opinion. And maybe there are some benefits here and there because of the work being done, maybe some kernel improvements, sort of. But ultimately, its goal is to obfuscate Linux and kind of hijack some of the value so that Windows can have more things that it couldn't do on its own. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. And one of the comments says, you know, WSL runs on Hyper-V, which is still virtualization. Many distros already had virtual box images, so it's not much more of a stretch to support WSL from that standpoint. Yeah, so from a resource standpoint, the original thing was, well, WSL is much lighter than a standard VM. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't know that that's even still the case, that, that claim, but a lot of it was because you weren't having a desktop environment and things like that installed Typically, in that scenario, WSL, the original, was just a console, right? That's all you yeah, got. Yeah, it was just command line tools. Yeah. yeah. Now, now it's obviously getting much more robust, um, and but you still don't have the desktop environment and other things. Not that you always have to install a desktop environment in a VM, but uh, it wasn't an mm -hmm. option on the WSL side. Um, but yes, I, I think that the virtual machine is a great way for people to learn Linux, experiment with Linux, and try Linux and get over that fear of it for the first time. Jill, yeah. what are your thoughts on this? Well, it's it's actually something I show my my students to use a virtual box on uh, uh, Mac or Windows and run Linux, just so that it's you know a comfortable environment for them. And but I I let them know. That yes, they can they can run uh, Blender in the VM. They can run uh, Krita and a bunch of other programs. But you're not going to get the rendering speed unless you install it bare metal. <laughs> and uh, not good for gaming on on the VM, although it can be done. <laughs> yeah, with <laughs> a lot of configuration just, tweaks and yeah. all this other stuff. Yeah. yeah, so they know it's a learning tool. And then I always show them, of course, how how to boot Linux from a USB and install it properly on bare metal. Right. And, you know, speaking of bare metal, I always in, do my installs of uh, 
on bare metal when we do our distro reviews. And mm -hmm. it's one of the reasons I have so many computers. <laughs> and so I, you know, I have one set up for Fedora. I have one set up for Arch. <laughs> that's a, know, that's a good excuse, Jill. I like it. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and it works. But it is really helpful. <laughs> it's really helpful to have machines dedicated to different distros. <laughs> nice. Yep. I think that that's a great point about virtual machines are really good for making it easy for people to get started and just kind of try things out. I do yeah. think there is a, a there's pros and cons to that, obviously. So certain things that they would try, like the Snap Firefox, uh, they might think that, oh, you know, Linux takes forever to load stuff, so it's not even worth it. Like it can't even get a browser done or whatever. That could be, you know, a con or a backfire kind of thing. But I do yeah. think it's a good point because there are you know, there are people who want to try it out, but they don't want to get rid of their entire setup like that, what they already have. Like if they already have a lot of time put in their windows configurations and stuff mm -hmm. like that, they really wouldn't totally. want to just get rid of it all immediately. So I think virtual machines are a good option. I think that probably the best option is really a live USB where they can mm -hmm. experience yeah. it as if it was bare metal, even though it's not technically bare metal, but it would, there'd be less likely you know, issues with like virtualization uh, artifacts if you did it with a live USB. That's why I typically remind, re recommend the live USB route. Mm -hmm. Problem with the yeah, live USB yeah. route, in, in my experience, is sometimes the that that can be buggy. And two, you're sure. not going to have the ability to save and store files and things on there. True. So I usually I get that warning that, though as well. Yeah. I, I like the VM option for people. I think that it is a really good way to experience distros, but VMs have issues. Sure. If you're if you're playing with something on a VM, it's a very different experience at times. Like for instance, if someone is thinking about using Linux and they're a gamer and they go install Steam or something, not knowing much about virtual machines to us, we're like, why would you do that? But to somebody who's new and just thinks, hey, I got this thing booted. It's an operating system, Steam installed. It's in a virtual machine. They try to game and things don't work right. Or other graphical apps like Blender or things start to really slow down depending on the resources of their machine. It could be a bad experience for people. So, Jill, I saw in the notes you yeah. mentioned, hey, get an old laptop or pick something up used as another option for people to try Linux out as an option where you can install it on bare metal. Yeah, but VM's not a perfect solution, is what I'm getting at for for everyone. No, it isn't. But I I do think uh, one of the important aspects of VM it's good for me to show my students because it teaches the concept of using VM in the first place because they mm -hmm. don't they they've heard the term like you know in the news you know about the cloud and running VMs and virtual but they don't understand ex actually what it means and it's one of the reasons I I cover it. Because a lot of my students also have a tendency to not only be animators, but they wanted to get into coding and game design and and uh, maybe be even be a system administrator because it's nice. computers also in general. Right. <laughs> so, right. And it's just a lot of, uh, I remember one student in particular was like, um, was hopping up and down after I explained it. Cause the, cause he's like, I never understood what this meant. How did I, now I, he was so excited. Knowledge is awesome. virtual machine. Yeah. Awesome. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Um, even my nephew actually used Linux for the first time in a VM on his Mac. Yeah. I, I showed yeah, him how to UTM, do it. UTM, right? Yeah. Probably use UTM. Yeah. UTM. UTM is a really powerful, um, mm -hmm. virtual machine software to create VMs in a Mac environment, including on the Apple Silicon. So if you're using an M1, M2, you can yeah. still use UTM to boot up 
a Linux VM. Probably, interestingly enough, one of the best virtualization experiences out there is using UTM on a Mac. Uh, I've done that myself, and the virtual Linux in the UTM Mac environment is mm -hmm. near flawless. It's good. It's fast, <laughs> and it's very responsive. Sadly, Windows... Not it should so be because it is ha, does have a Unix BSD backend. <laughs> Good point, Jill. Good yeah. point. Yes, I'm actually less bothered by people doing virtual machines in Mac than I am in Windows, just because the experience is a lot better in Mac due to the similarities mm -hmm. of you know they're basically cousin operating systems. Yeah, right. And a lot of my students are art students who a lot of them are trained on the Macs because in the beginning courses, they teach Photoshop, Illustrator and everything on the Mac. <laughs> so they usually come to me on Macs mostly. Yep. Yeah. What about on a Chromebook? You know, we said this thing about Windows utilizing That's Linux and WSL. <laughs> Crouton. <laughs> what about Christini? In the, Christini? Is Google doing the same thing, Michael? Are they taking advantage I think of that they're, Linux they're, like they're, Windows? They're trying to use Linux to a benefit that is valuable in certain situations, but any level of like difficulty, it's not going to be there. Like I when like you, how you said that's adorable. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's adorable for the idea of like using any kind of uh, rendering or graphic stuff on those things because even the ones that are decently powerful are kind of a joke in terms of like being able to actually do things of intense computations. So like there was the pixel, which was the other, you know, the pixel book or whatever it was called, where it was mm -hmm. supposed to be like this really high end thing, but it was a very high end piece of hardware that could only do certain things. And it was very limited. And at that point, like why even make this thing, which is uh, really why they discontinued it. So <laughs> Well, but. you know, it's interesting because sitting right over there to the left of me is a powerful gaming Chromebook. Now, when I say a powerful gaming Chromebook, I mean that <laughs> it's got all the specs. Relatively of a, speaking of other relatively Chromebooks. low end PC <laughs> yeah. laptop. And it comes with subscription service to game in the cloud with because it has no GPU. Uh, it's made by Lenovo. It's one of the brand new ones that they just stop laughing, Michael. This is serious. <laughs> it's a gaming. Google put a lot of time into it. It's a <laughs> gaming, gaming high-end gaming Chromebook that doesn't have a GPU. <laughs> yes, all, all of that is true. So uh, over there, and, and what's interesting is Chrome is I, I see the benefit of it again for schools and institutions oh, yeah, for and sure. things where you're trying to lock people down. I've I've heard. Uh, from people that the administration of Chromebooks is super easy. So I get why they exist in that stuff. But I'm just talking from a single user experience. A power user is that Chrome OS is nearly worthless until yeah. you put Linux on it. Yeah. Now, once I install Linux, now I can get actual IDEs and things that I can use outside of the cloud. You could use it as a computer, exactly. I could yeah, use it exactly. as an actual computer. You know, <laughs> I can get um, video editing, screen recording stuff that's not really suspect of who wrote it and what it's really taking from me. Like Linux makes it a much more powerful experience. But what I like is that when you do install something in Christini on the Chrome OS, which makes it very easy now to install Linux, is that it puts it in a folder called Linux apps. Like Linux is kind of labeled everywhere. So I feel like it still gives a nice nod to uh -huh. Linux, even though Linux is what makes it Yeah, but powerful. does Google actually make those things or is that... I have no clue. Yeah, I think it's a third it's cool. party thing. Well, it's, it's got to be they make it because it's in their OS to turn it on. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. Like it's oh, built yeah. into their OS to just turn on the Linux side. So, so interesting. Uh, I think at the end of it, it's this: use a VM. It's not filthy, Michael. It's not bad. It's a great training. To be tool clear for people. for people, when I said it was filthy dual booting, what he was doing is because back in like a year or two, well, actually about two years ago. Uh-huh. I I revealed that I am a 99%. Actually, it's better now, but I was a 99% Linux user, but I had oh my 1%. Oh, that's disgusting. Are I had you serious, one, Michael? I, I had 1% for Photoshop. Now I don't even have to use Photoshop, Woo-hoo. which is fantastic. How could you have a reaction like that when you're doing the worst configuration of a dual booter? What are you talking about? You know about? what? It's because it's you. <laughs> it's because adorbs, I, Michael. Yeah, it's adorbs. adorbs. Exactly. Exactly. But... The, the thing about that is um, the dual booting is not a problem. In fact, one of the things about computing that's cool is that you can do multiple installs and have whatever you want. And if you want to have a machine that can run like all three of the main ones or 20 different Linuxes, that's fantastic. There's no, You shouldn't be limiting yourself to any particular thing because you're not, you're not expanding your experiences for what could be you know another thing that you might like. So if you have one particular Linux distro and you haven't tried another one in a long time, there might be something in those that you would find benefit, and maybe you could even like tweak into the one you mainly yeah. use. You know, just, I think there's eventually, so many different ways. When you start with a VM, people will get brave enough to go. I really yeah. like this. It's time Absolutely. to put it on some bare metal. And just yeah. go to eBay or Amazon and buy a used uh, Dell Optiplex like I showed last week in our holiday gift guide. <laughs> and you yeah. can get those from anywhere from like 50 bucks to 200. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, those are those are that's a good option. And yeah. I do think the virtual machine is a, is a solid way to do it. Mm-hmm. There are many benefits to using a virtual machine. I mean, even if you Absolutely. you could just use a virtual yeah. machine for the purpose of like having an extra set that you're doing, you know, certain applications in a certain virtual machine. Like there's many ways you can do it. It doesn't have to be just testing. It could be an appliance style or whatever. So virtual machines are very powerful and we're not saying that you shouldn't do them. I'm saying that virtual machines are a good way to get started, but you kind of have to tell people if you're going to recommend using virtual machines to let them know that it's not going to be a complete full experience without it being directly installed because you are going through two different operating systems at that point. So as long as you're clear right. about that, there's nothing wrong yeah. with using a virtual machine. And you have the right resources because <laughs> if you got like two gigabytes of RAM and a 900 yes. megahertz processor, yeah. if you're still yeah. using you're gonna 32-bit, be don't, even, yeah. don't even bother. <laughs> well, what's awesome is my students are always blown away when I show them running a, a Blender from a USB flash drive because Blender still runs better and quicker from a Linux flash slot du- drive than it does on windows it's slower up on windows so i believe it i believe it well you know the first piece of software i install on my vms michael is take a wild guess wsl michael how dare you you know what it is (laughs) it's bitwarden so i know what my wsl credentials are so i can get w oh okay i see yeah, this episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by the awesome folks at Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash tux. That's slash T-U-X. And you want to use that URL because you want to let them know that we sent you there. Bitwarden.com slash tux is a password manager software. that allows you peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. Bitwarden provides you the tools to store all your passwords in a secured vault. Auto-generate those passwords and usernames for you. Fill out those login forms. Those forms are so annoying and frustrating, but Bitwarden makes it easy for you. And 
It encrypts the data before it ever leaves your device. Plus, you can put Bitwarden anywhere. You can leave it in the CLI, you can have it in the web browser, you can have apps on your phones. If you've got a bajillion different computers, you can have it on every single one of those to keep them safe and secure. Plus, they have a $10 premium account, which includes things like a gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo. Personally, I use the YubiKey version. Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator, and Priority Customer Support for less than a dollar per month. Everything is more expensive. Stakes are like 60% more. Milk, 40% more. Did Bitwarden raise their prices, Michael? No, you don't even have to answer. The answer is no, they didn't because they're awesome. <laughs> they didn't, no. Jump on it right now, $10 per year. Bitwarden.com slash tux. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. There was an article this week that caught our attention from ZDNet where they classified three tiers of difficulty in Linux distros. And I thought it would be interesting to take this article and see if we, the, the, we and the community as a whole agree with this classifications here or if we have any tweaks to offer. So first of all, the, there's the tier one, which is the easy tier, tier two, which is moderate, and then tier three, which is challenging. I think there should be more tiers because the the more and more you get into the difficulty, the more different they are from each other. But let's first start off with the easy tier. Do you agree that these are in the easy tier? For example, we have Ubuntu, Linux Mint, Zorin OS, and Ubuntu Budgie. I'd also put like most of the Ubuntu flavors in there, really. Yeah, yeah. I think you could really put any Ubuntu flavor in there. I think it's a good list. There's some things that are missing like Pop! OS, I think is a beginner tier uh, distro for people to check out. It's interesting yeah. that you say that because this article says that one of the requirements to be considered easy was the inclusion of snaps and flat packs, which I kind of understand why you'd want to do that. But they also mentioned that it needs to be using uh, KDE, Plasma, Cinnamon, Budgie, or Mate, but that GNOME changes the metaphor of the paradigm of usage too much for wow. it to be considered easy. Yeah, that's interesting. They would put Ubuntu then because they didn't specify what Ubuntu and Ubuntu proper, of course, is GNOME. So right. that would completely remove Ubuntu out of this thing. So, um, you know, I don't disagree and I don't agree with this statement all at the same time. Like GNOME is a beautiful experience out of the box. However, there are very critical things that are missing out of the box that you need the extension system to yeah. fix depending on the distro because some distros automatically add in yeah. their own Maybe that's why Ubuntu's in there because it does that. do that. Yeah, so, but without those, GNOME is not usable, uh, I don't think. Agreed. From a default standpoint. So I kind of agree with the writer of this and also disagree yeah. at the same time. Like I think some GNOME implementations can mm -hmm. be beginner friendly if they already have extension systems. I mean, the best already. example... Yeah, like Pop of, OS or Ubuntu. Yeah. I think Pop yeah. OS has a lot of changes that are both good for the beginner and also more developer-centric, depending on, like, you know, the whole tiling thing. That's not really a beginner-related thing. But there is something that I think is interesting is that Zorin OS, for those who don't know, they use GNOME as the backend for their interface. And if you look at it, it looks nothing like GNOME. That's just mm -hmm. like their back end. Yeah. In, like they use the DE as the base for creating their own like paradigm. And it's more similar to Windows in the way it lays out. So it's interesting that you could say like the 
if you're talking about GNOME as a desktop environment, I think it's more the default paradigm that they offer that's really the issue. And I do think that it is different enough to make people kind of hesitate about like whether or not to use it. But I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing because some people want to get away from the Windows paradigm and they just want something different. So maybe GNOME in that sense is a good option. But I do agree that default GNOME you know missing? isn't a good option. Nico Jet, one of our patrons, says that it's missing WSL as an easy one on this list for me specifically, he said. So ah, yes. <laughs> thanks a lot, Nico. That's I appreciate it. Zero. That. That's yeah. Tier. yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> tier two has moderate, mm-hmm. considered moderate, and they put Pop OS. Here's the first one: Fedora Elementary, Deepin, Bodhi, Garuda, Peppermint, OpenSUSE, Manjaro, MX Linux, KDE Neon, Lubuntu. I disagree with a lot on this list. Uh, I think Garuda is an amazing Arch experience, but I think anything Arch should go into challenging. challenging. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Anything based on Arch should not be presented to anyone who's a beginner. Like just and, outright period, yeah. no beginner should be using anything Arch-based. Even the ones like Garuda and Manjaro that have a lot of good changes that are really good to use because they're still based on Arch and they are inheriting a lot of stuff that can blow up in the face of a beginner. And that's really the... break, it's very difficult if you're not a experienced Linux user in the Arch world. Even on Manjaro, yes. even though it's presented near beautifully perfect as a beginner distro, when something breaks, like a GPG signature isn't signed or some other random thing happens, like it, it's pretty complex to get in there yeah. and resolve those issues from a new user standpoint especially uh, when some of those moderate is def- yeah. moderate to me is still a newer user but that has some experience running stuff on bare metal and things i think that would be too much for them i agree with that but i also think that the way that you're talking about how there's some issues with something that's based on arch if the if something goes wrong it's going to go wrong to a degree that it's going to be very confusing and difficulty there's also a situation just a few months ago where one of the Arch-based distros had an issue where you just got a black screen. Like, it wouldn't boot, and you just there's nothing you could do about it, and there was no indication what went wrong. And if you are new to Linux, that's just going to make you go back to whatever you were using before. Yeah. Now, he's saying yeah. moderate here, but still, yeah. I think it. No, I don't disagree that... I don't disagree that some of these should be in moderate. I do think that elementary OS and I think Fedora, even though Fedora is an easy to use distro and has a lot of benefits and can easily be beginner friendly out of the box, it's not necessarily beginner friendly because there are some tweaks that you need to do. So I think that putting that in tier two is fair, but I do think that I agree with the arch based stuff should be in a different, more difficulty tier. What and about KDE Neon? It really shouldn't even be here as a I don't think. Yeah, I don't think Neon should even be on the list at all, regardless of tier, because it's the same boat that GNOME OS has. So for those who don't know, there's a GNOME OS yeah. type of thing that is for developing and for testing, and it's not meant to be used. But KDE Neon is confusing because they have a user edition and they have a developer edition. But it's meant specifically for the purpose of developing, and their frequently asked questions even says, this is not a distro, and it also says that they only care about the KDE stack, not the rest of the distro parts. So if that's the case, why do you even have a user edition? I've never understood that, 
But that's why anytime the neon topic comes up, I always want to express the differences between what people think it's for and what it's actually for. Yeah. Hmm. And I thought that actually elementary OS uh, begins at, it should be in the easy category. I I agree. Because uh, I, I know a lot of new users to Linux uh, came came through elementary OS. Yeah, I, I agree. Think that elementary could be there. I, I, I agree that elementary could be in the tier one. Uh, I do think there is some argument that it could be in tier two just because of the paradigm is so different. Uh, but understand. I, yeah. But I also yeah. think that that paradigm difference is not such a drastic issue to, you know, make it be a different tier. So I, I would be totally comfortable with elementary OS being in that uh, that tier. I do want to mention that I think that OpenSUSE being in this tier does fit because OpenSUSE mm-hmm. is fantastic, fit. but it's out-of-the-box experience, needs some work. And if they were to address the out-of-the-box experience – then OpenSUSE would easily be in the tier one. Like there's so yeah. much value to it, but when you first get started with it, like the in, the installation process is kind of confusing. Right. The like, how do you get a software installed from the the OBS or from like the one click package with the Yast and stuff like that? Even though it's not one click, like those kinds of things are kind of confusing for a beginner. So if those were addressed, OpenSUSE would jump to the top, like top five, top three, very quickly. Yeah. And I think uh, 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 Bodhi Linux, he he put uh, Jack Wallen, actually, who wrote the article, is actually one of my favorite Linux journalists out there. I love his articles. They're very thought-provoking, and I read every one of them. The Bodhi Linux is wonderful, and it's in a good spot because it uses the Enlightenment desktop environment, um, which I personally love, but it's not necessarily beginner-friendly, so I think that was a good spot for it. Yeah, I think that there should be more tiers, really. (laughs) Like the yeah. having three tiers, I think there should be more just because the yeah. I would not put Bodhi in the second tier just because the experience the, the enlightenment. Well, they use they have a, on their own fork of enlightenment called Moksha. And yeah, Moksha. Yeah. It's even more specific to their purposes. And I would also say the same thing for other distributions that are you know using like OpenBox or something like that, where they're more specific to a user experience that they want to offer. And there's not really a tier that fits here. So I would add probably at least two Special or three more tier. tiers. Yeah. Yeah. If I you see. have I3WM, that should be in like the superior to every other tier tier. Yeah, the best <laughs> tier. Yeah, that's that's, best that's tier. in the S tier, right? Uh-huh. Yes, S tier. There you go. So it, yeah. to wrap this up, here, yeah, challenging, and I don't think anybody's going to be shocked here. Yeah, these Linux are perfect. Linux from yeah. scratch. Yeah, of course. Arch Linux. Honestly? I mean, Arch Linux, I feel like could be tier one if no. you're awesome like me. No. But if you're not <laughs> awesome like me, then it's probably tier three. Hey, and then hey, Gen 2. Hey, hey Ryan, what yeah. was your first experience installing Arch? How was that? It was amazing. It took <laughs> like, it was six hours of heaven. <laughs> of okay? heaven. Of heaven. Yes. Yeah. Like, I got a preview of the pearly gates and everything for six hours. It was amazing. All right, oh perfect. Boy. And, well, and I've spent the time to build my own distro with Linux from scratch. That was uh, fun. That's I learned Jill's it. Awesome. Distro. <laughs> Jill's distro would be in the expert tier, right? Because it would have rat poison and all of these random integrations and things yes. that other people wouldn't use. Yeah. I would actually say that this, the, the, one of the reasons I wanted to have a more tiers is that I think tier three should have more things in it, but also these things are not like each other. 
So yeah. Arch Linux and Gentoo are kind of similar, but they're also very different. No. They're very different in the sense like, well, the building we process. We are not friends with Gentooers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. What, I'm kidding. And, what I'm and saying. And then we got to put uh, Slackware in tier three as well. Yeah. Yes. So I would Linux say. from. I would say Arch Linux is in the same tier. Of, it's, yeah. it's tier three. And then Gentoo yeah. and Slackware would go into tier four. And then Linux from scratch would go into tier 75 by itself. 75. <laughs> yeah. And you just skip a bunch and it's it's all by itself. And like, you, you do this if you have a week to spare. Otherwise, don't bother. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, they're just not weak-minded like you, Michael. They love to compile and compile and compile. Well, the process, what I'm saying is it's going to take a week to do all that compiling. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. True. And configurations because you don't, it, with Gentoo, you got to wait for the compiling, but at least you don't have to configure everything. With Linux from scratch, it's all of it, all at once. And in, you well, know, ways of it's, busy box. it's great. I but it's think also this person did a great job putting three tiers together, Jack Wollen. I think you could put another tier in there. I agree with you, Michael. They did a pretty good job overall yeah, yeah. here. I, this a is not bit. a judgment of the article. I'm just saying, like, no. I would put some more tiers just because I'd want to separate <laughs> yeah. some of these from each other. That's all. Yeah, but it was a, it was a good job, good attempt. Mostly agree with a lot of stuff on here. But let us know what you think. Uh, write us a note and let us know if you think Gen Two, for instance, should be in Tier One because I might have your back. I just don't for think, the giggles. Yeah, just for the just for the lols. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So instead of waging war with your family members during the holidays, not unlike what Ryan and Michael do each and every week. Why, why, I, I wage war against why? Ryan. That's true. That's what she meant, Michael. I know, but I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I'm you're just clarifying. A- I'm just clarifying. I don't wage war against my family, just Ryan. That's what I hope. You're such a tier one brain. <laughs> so I'm tier 75. How dare you? So instead of waging war with your family members, why not ignore them and wage war in a video game (laughs) instead? Ignore them. (laughs) I mean, it is the holidays. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So this this week's game pick is World War One. Isonzo, the Italian Front, and this it has over four thousand very positive reviews and is really an interesting glimpse glimpse into World War One and the battle tactics and fronts that were fought on. And the World War One Isonzo graphics look absolutely beautiful as you battle your way in the majestic Alps. The game on Steam describes itself like this. Ferocious Alpine warfare will test your tactical skills in the authentic World War One FPS. Battle among the scenic peaks, rugged valleys, and idyllic towns of Northern Italy. The great war on the Italian front is Brought to life and elevated to unexpected heights. Very intense. It it's the graphics were just so or it looks so beautiful. Right. Yeah, they did a really <laughs> good job on this. I watched a streamer play this game this week and yeah. it did kind of make me want to go play it. Like it's pretty awesome looking. And for those there there's a battlefront or is it a warfare game that's really popular out there on the Call of Duty side that is about World War One. I can't think of its name, uh, Battlefront or something like that. But anyways, maybe that's Star Wars. Battlefield? Future. Battlefield. Battlefield. Oh, Battlefield. Battlefield. Yeah, 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 maybe it was that. But in any case, it was about the World War One, and it was just a beautiful game. But that doesn't play on Linux as far as I know, but this one does, and it's just as gorgeous. And there was a lot of like a chess match and, and skills and things that you had to deal with mm. here. 
you didn't have these powerful machine guns that shoot 500 bullets a second. You've got, you know, single shot, six shot rifles and things like that. And uh, a lot more things to worry about. And the constant environment is like being in a war zone where stuff's just constantly flying and firing you know like in a lot of these modern warfare games you've got all this stuff flying around but somehow you can hear somebody's footsteps walking behind you yeah, <laughs> yeah. good good luck in this game because it it tries to make it like a full battlefield and i find it really uh fascinating and just yeah, yesterday cool. i was watching a documentary on the smithsonian channel um, about some of the um, planes and things that were used in world war ii and all this stuff so if you're a history buff what i'm getting at is this type of game can be really fascinating from multiple fronts, I think, to kind of have some fun, experience a game. Uh, obviously, it's nothing like real war, um, but it also, there's some historic significance to some of these places yeah. and battles and stuff you can learn about, which is cool. Yeah, the trench warfare uh, battle scenes looked incredible. And a lot of the comments had said that even though this one isn't isn't a huge AAA title, it's one of the best and most accurate. The graphics were gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. That's very, very well cool. Done. And... and it's on sale. Yes, it's on sale for 20% off at $23.99 on Steam. But the sale ends December 15th. So hopefully you're watching this episode before then. <laughs> you can play it on Linux. Yes. But you can't play it on a Linux VM and you can't play it on a Chromebook, gaming Chromebook. But you can yes. play it on the bare metal. Yes. There you go. <laughs> you can't play it on a gaming Chromebook or pretty oh. much any other game. Well... <laughs> The cloud version, you maybe if there's a cloud version streaming out there. Our software spotlight this week is Bleach Bit. While we've covered this a few hundred episodes ago, <laughs> my gosh, how long have we yeah. been doing this? Uh, I feel like it's really important for people to uh, know about this one. It's an open source cleaner and file shredder. However, I'm going to put a big caution out there right up front. Do not mess with this unless you've backed up your files and important and critical yes. things because it can really mess your system up. When Just it like says shredding, it is going yeah. to destroy it. Yes. You're not yeah. going to get it back. It's like CC Cleaner, I think, on the Windows side yes. is the one. Like you can damage your system there too, but I would say CC Cleaner even has more controls than Bleach Bit does as far as helping you not destroy yeah. your system. Bleach Bit's like, hey, you know what you're doing. We're going to let you do it. Good luck. And that's how it rolls. But it's exactly. Yeah, it's a very powerful tool for identifying and removing a bunch of stuff that's just been accumulating over the years, like cookies and URL history and temporary files and logs and um, machine or software that's leaving back remnants of different pieces of software that you're not utilizing anymore. Mm -hmm. All of Cash, that type of stuff. Stuff like that. Yes. Yeah. It can clean up, um, but it can also clean your entire hard drive from very shiny scratch <laughs> new. So yeah. be careful, back your important files up first, then play with this uh, or mess with it in a VM, learn how it works there. And That's then you could use it There's on your main idea. machine. You could do it in yeah. WSL maybe. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> and, and make sure to use the preview function first before you delete everything and click yes. the clean button. That's <laughs> that a very important a piece because that preview, <laughs> that will tell you what it's about to destroy and yes. then you could stop it from destroying it. So don't just <laughs> assume that it's fine and just delete whatever. Go through yeah. the preview first just to make sure. Or take a risk. Live on the edge. <laughs> Live on if the you're, edge. If you're an, if you're an art you're in a VM, chooser, it doesn't matter. 
Yeah, or if you're in a VM. But if you're an Arch user, you're used to living on the edge. We just yeah. we don't click preview as Arch users. We just do it, Michael. We just deal we with just the consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So next up, let's talk about the tip of the week. And while flat packs, snaps, app images, and just the traditional stuff like RPMs and devs, there's so much more software that is available on Linux that we've ever had before. But there are also times where you might find a program in a different way. So there could be a tarball, which is typically referred to as a tarball, but that could be a tar.gz, a tar.xz, a tar.bz2, a tar.tgz. There's a lot of different formats, and they're are typically... You speaking another language? What are well, you talking about? Well, these are the formats that are the archiving from different types of it. So the tar part of it is essentially the way to create a multiple file archive and to be able to store it and download as a single file, just like you would with a zip file or a RAR file and that sort of thing. But when you see these, this could be many different types of file installation process for programs. You could have it where Firefox, for example, does a BZ2 style with tar. I think it's BZ2. And when you download it, it actually has a binary built into the package where you don't have to install it or do anything. You just double click the binary and it starts up Firefox. Yeah. Now, there, and there's other versions where it has an install script like an install.sh and you can then do a process of going through there. Then there's other types of tarballs where they are, it's just the source code and you would have to compile it. And there, we're, we're telling you this because there are more f- uh, files, then you would maybe be recognized by the flat packs and snaps and avenges and debs and RPMs and all that. So you may find a package here or there that it doesn't seem like it's actually a, a piece of software, but it is. Like, for example, the Firefox or the Thunderbird download where you can get the full binary just directly inside the BZ2. Now, the the big thing here, though, is be sure where you get these files are you you trust the source? I mean, this is something you have to do with any type of package, but in this case, it's even more so because in order to use some of these, like if you're going to do some compiling, you need to make sure you trust whatever you're compiling. And with the binaries, you might have to give it permissions and that sort of stuff in order to run. So be sure to, you know, test where you're that getting these from. Test. No, that's yes. Make sure you know exactly where you're getting it. Uh, But tarballs are very useful. And a lot of people think that they're mostly just source code. And that's not always the case. Oh, sorry. Tarball. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Actually, I respect the dad joke, but it it actually (laughs) makes me facepalm that I didn't think of that. Yes. Yes. So I've been using, uh, as as Michael was talking about, I've actually been downloading the firefox.tar.com bz2 for many years since the very beginning of uh, firefox Mm -hmm. and instead of using you know the snap or even the deb i just out of habit download that but i was going to tell you what we've we've called it for for years in in linux and the unixes is we 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 call it gunzip and bunzip to the rescue (laughs) that's Unzip and bunzip. I like it. Yeah. Nice. So yeah. So for new <laughs> Linux folks, you might see the file extension .gz, .b2bz2, or .tgz. And in addition, as Michael was saying, it may have tar.bz2. So it could be file.tar.bz2 or something along those lines. So 
I remember the first time I saw this is watch why I'm emphasizing this. It confused the heck out of me. I bet. And I, yeah. I also learned very quickly the importance of a readme file. But there was a story <laughs> about two because each of these will usually, if the software is done right, have a readme file. It'll tell yes. you exactly how usually. to install it. Now, there was a piece of software that I had found a couple years ago and Michael was at my house. And I do you remember this, Michael? And I could not get this thing to install. It didn't have a readme file. And oh, I, yeah, yeah, believe, yeah. I believe the mention, like I handed my laptop to you and said, oh, you think you're so good at Linux, Michael. You said you're the pro, so get it working. And I, if I'm remembering it correctly, it's the one where you double clicked on the file and then it just opened. Was well, that the one? It was because that particular format didn't have permissions to, when you activated it, it would open up the archive. But once you that give it permissions, yes. then it would be like, okay, now you can do it this way. And if you don't tell it to give permissions first, it would just not work. I don't remember exactly what format it was, but I do remember this this situation. Because I was doing this make file and trying to yeah. compile it and all this stuff, and it just was a simple like... Yeah, and I looked at it and like, oh, it's fix. just this. <laughs> it was like yeah. a 20-second fix. But that's the some of the things over when you're getting into the more bare bones, the more... Uh, deep end of Linux, it gets it can get more and more complicated. That's why I'm such a huge fan of the flat packs and the snaps and the app images because it makes it so much easier for everybody to just to get access to the applications. Where it used to be, this was the only option to get yeah. stuff on Linux. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. this is how we used to have to download everything. <laughs> yeah. Before Debs and before RPMs, this is what yeah. we did. Did you guys so. also have to walk uphill in six feet of snow to get to school? Uh, actually, we had to compile in six feet of snow. It was yeah. very, <laughs> yeah. it was very difficult. There we go. I had to compile in a, a steep uh, hill of sand to the ocean. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, awesome tip, Michael. And a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. However you do it, love your faces. We're here every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern live at tuxdigital.com slash live. Did you know, Michael, you can come see our faces? You, you know we're on video right now? Yeah. I, did, well, I didn't realize I had a camera on me. Wow, that's weird. Yeah. Aww. Thankfully, Big Brother supplies the camera and it's in HD. Uh, everyone is invited you can to see watch our the recording yeah. <laughs> of Destination Linux each and every week. We can't wait to see you in the chat. Super high quality HD. <laughs> and also, we have our patrons with us, and they get access yeah. to all sorts of great perks. You get unedited versions of the show. You can also also hang out with us after the show in the patron-only post-show, which happens every single week. And you can have so many great more perks by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute to sign up. And like we mentioned last week, it's not only are you signing up for this show, you also would be get, becoming a patron of the entire network, getting access to all sorts of great stuff. Everything has been combined for into one. For one low price? <laughs> for one Yay. low, low price of only six easy payments of... Are <laughs> <laughs> we crazy? Wow. I can't believe the value, Michael. All of our shows for one patron subscription? You just said uh -huh. it and forget Makes it. Sense. Exactly. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. So you go to tuxdigital.com slash contribute and sign up to become a patron of the entire network and get more perks than you can possibly imagine. I mean, maybe you could think of other things, but let's go with that. 
so more many perks. Can, more than all you your wildest, more wi- all your wildest dreams will come true. All you your wildest dreams will come true relative to being a patron of the network. <laughs> yeah. Aw. Like a little, little bit our, of a qualifier there. <laughs> you'll yeah. be in our VM known as the Skybox. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So, and also go right now to tuxdigital.com slash store where you can pick up some awesome swag. We have t-shirts, hoodies, hats, Yay. mugs, stickers, coasters, and mm-hmm. so much more stuff. So go to tuxdigital.com slash store to pick it up. I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, how can I be more like Ryan? Well, you could go get one of Ryan's hats right now on the tuxdigital.com slash store. I know what you're yeah, thinking right you now. Where could I get that awesome shirt you're wearing, Michael, the This Week in Linux shirt? Where could I get that? Well, just go to tuxdigital.com slash store, and you can get it one for yourself right now. You probably weren't thinking that, but you probably were thinking, how can I be Aww. more like Jill? And you could go you get, get that 33% more Jill. More merch. <laughs> 33% more merch. No, it says 33% <laughs> <Yeah>. more Jill. <laughs> and, and for those out there who haven't checked out our other awesome shows here on Tux Digital. We have the Pseudo Show, This Week in Linux, the DOS Geek Channel, Linux Out Loud, Hardware Addicts, Gamesphere, and Linux Saloon. And everyone head to textdigital.com and subscribe to all these great shows. And don't forget to leave a rating on your favorite app so others can discover the power of open source and keep those penguins marching and the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. Woohoo! See you next week. Love you all. Most of you. Most of you. <laughs> <laughs>